This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. I just want you to take a second to soak in this moment. I mentioned it at the end of last week's episode, but on September 1st, 1993, cameras started rolling on speed. We are very much in the sweet spot as we ride out this 30th anniversary celebration. They're shooting out there on the soon-to-be-opened 105 freeway on the south side of Los Angeles, and we'll catch up with them soon enough. But in the meantime, we still don't have the final ingredient. A nemesis. The character started out as Rudy. The March 93 draft sets him up like so. Rudy. Blonde. Athletic. Hair pulled back in a ponytail. Glasses. In one hand, Rudy holds the hair of his hysterical hostage, Francine. In the other hand, he holds a short, stick-like device. Strapped to his chest is 20 pounds of C4 plastic explosive. He grins. And he says... Dead man stick, sport. Kill me and we all go. Alright, so... Francine comes out of nowhere here, by the way, and she's the hostage that I've mentioned who originally died in this scene and set Harry up for his villain arc before all that went away. And eventually, Howard Payne was conjured from the ashes of Rudy. And by the way, his name changes to Howard Fisk at some point, and that's what it is in the production draft. But obviously they got cold feet on that. Anyway, the character is evolving a little bit as the script doctors tinker with it. By way of description, the script originally sets him up as, quote, a tiny man with marble skin. Later on, writer Joss Whedon would put some more meat on those bones when Payne kills a guy with a knife in the opening moments of the movie. The final description reads, Dripping knife aside, he is an ordinary-looking man. His face is dead calm, only his eyes betraying the sea of hate behind it. So he's clearly a psychopath, ultimately a disfigured former Atlanta bomb squad officer who lost his thumb on the job and is out to get a forced pension, if you will. Nevertheless, just like everything else, they're simply not finding any interest in this role. Let's go back to casting director Risa Brayman Garcia. Jeff Bridges passed. Kurt Russell uh, passed. But it was all the it was the usual suspects. You know, I mean, we went after very A-list guys. Sean Penn passed. You know, we we went after A-list guys who could play convincing, fantastic bad guys. Kevin Klein, like we had like all the usual suspects. And why would they do it? My God, like there was nothing there on the page. Speaking a moment ago of Joss Whedon, if you'll recall, this is what he remembered of the shaping of this character on the page and through the casting search. The bad guy, when they told, they told me they wanted Robert Duvall. And I had this very sort of like low-key um my my actual pitch for the bad guy was Charles Broden. I wanted because I wanted him to be a nerd. I wanted him to be a quiet man who makes things with his hands and um, you know, very meticulously. 
and has for years and is angry in a almost passive aggressive bomber sort of way. Uh, passive, suddenly very aggressive. Well, let's hear from producer Mark Gordon on all of this. Dennis Hopper, number 44 on the list. I mean, there were so many people. Jan and I wanted, both of us were really excited about Randy Quaid. And the studio said, he's a, he's a comedy guy. People aren't going to take him seriously. I said, he's a really good actor. He's a really interesting actor. Go back and look at some of his earlier films where he's playing more dramatic than comedy. Maybe they were right, but we were like, you know, so many actors. Uh, there was Willem Dafoe. There was this one. There was this one. The studio would have an idea. We would say no. The, we'd have an idea. They'd say no. And here is director Jan DeBont to speak to this. Gary Oldman. He also, he was also one of them, by the way. He was, yeah. And I liked him, but he wasn't, it was too typical. It was like, I just wanted to, um, the bad guy also to be kind of a surprise character for the audience, you know, not just like, and they hold themselves at the line. They don't improvise so much. And it's, I mean, it's a great actor. Don't, don't, mis don't misunderstand me. But it's a kind of acting that didn't really fit in this particular kind of, kind of movie. We had some Brits. Yeah. Alan Rickman passed. Like, oh, you know, just, but it was like, of course, we went, we went from person to person to person to person. And it was, the, there was no reason for them to do it. And there wasn't money. Sometimes it's like, come in for a week and we'll pay you $5 million. Sometimes it's hard to say no to that, you know? Now we had the list of all the great character actors out there, and even some of them passed. You know, people who weren't quite as fancy. More like Tim Roth, and, you know, obviously all of those people are on the list for obvious reasons. So if you're keeping track, that's a lot of names. Sean Penn, Kevin Kline, Kurt Russell, Jeff Bridges, Robert Duvall, Charles Grodin, Randy Quaid, Willem Dafoe, Gary Oldman, Alan Rickman, Tim Roth. Wow. Someone also told me Jeff Goldblum, but I couldn't get that confirmed by anyone else. But there was one guy who was basically a hair's breadth away from landing this role. Everyone else said no, but this guy would have done it under the right circumstance. You ready for it? Here's former Fox exec Jorge Saralegi with the story. One that stands out in my mind is we finally at some point go, look, it doesn't matter if it's obvious, whatever. At this point, we just need a villain, right? Okay. Let's go with Christopher Walken. Fuck it. Okay? You know, that's all he does, right, is these things. So we go out to him over the weekend. And I live near a video store at the time. And that Saturday, I'm walking home from, you know, from wherever. And I pass the video store. And I see come a one sheet on the, on the, you know, on the glass for some, you know, action movie I never heard of starring Christopher Walken, right? And I go, yeah, he's going to say yes. He'll do anything. Monday, he passes. Now, <laughs> now he would have done it. He passes because he is doing God's Army prophecy, and he says, I have to have two weeks off. Just take a break. And we couldn't do it. It, it was already waiting too long. Because that was like really... This is like arguably like we've just started shooting and we still don't have anybody, but we need the, the Dennis Hopper character by a certain time. And so he said, no, that's how close it came. Now, the truth is, he would have been great. I mean, that's one 
that's the one of those of all these little stories. That's the one character that you go, you know, he would have been fine. He would have been great because he is great. And he would have done his own version and it would have been just as good. It would be better. He didn't cast this role until three days before we started shooting the actor or a week before. In other words, we were already in production and shooting on the freeway. Me talking to the studio as buses are flying by going, well, how about him? Well, how about him? No, we don't like that idea. Jan, what do you think of this? Nope, he doesn't like this. Oh, no, I don't, you know. It, so, yes, Christopher Walken, um, what Jan said about him was he has death in his eyes. I don't want He has death in his eyes. And Dennis was the only actor that we could all agree on. Dennis Hopper had one of the most unusual, unexpected, sort of all-terrain careers of any one of his caliber. We're going to go a lot deeper into this in next week's episode, but here's a guy who started his career on screen opposite James Dean, who got himself blacklisted in Hollywood for his rebellious ways, who screamed back onto the scene as the director of Easy Rider in 1969 and helped chart the course for a new Hollywood, and who then sort of ebbed and flowed, falling in and out of favor clashing creatively with some, flourishing with others. He was, above all, an uncompromising artist, and his most accomplished work would be with uncompromising artists. Vim Vendors, Francis Ford Coppola, David Lynch. As cameras begin rolling on speed in September of 1993, he's on screens in Tony Scott's True Romance. He's no stranger to playing the villain, certainly. In fact, he's fresh off of playing King Koopa in the live-action Super Mario Brothers movie at the time as well as other stints in John Dahl's Red Rock West and opposite Wesley Snipes in Boiling Point, all while maintaining a directing career. He made two movies in 1990, Catch Fire, which he disowned, and The Hot Spot, and he'd released Chasers the same year as Speed. So he's not just sitting around the house. He's a working professional, and I'm sure he looked at Speed as a paycheck, but holy shit is he perfect. Here's former Fox production president Tom Jacobson. It was a hard part to cast. I think it was rewritten a couple times. And then he brought his own special quality to it. I think, you know, he did some of his own dialogue work. And, and you know, the, the part didn't work that long, right? Because of the way we did schedule, you know, a lot of it, he's calling in. And then and then when we finally see him, um, he was great. He's really most talented. You know, he's a director himself. He's an artist. He's a, he was very, and it was cool for all of us sort of growing up in the business of tennis opera cool think of him as sort of this outsider eccentric guy but no he's probably put he sort of created a character there i thought he was like a an american icon in a way that he represented a period in time in american filmmaking um i already knew him a little bit now because he's also a photographer he made quite a bit of work uh, of photography work in his life and he, and that was exhibited at quite a few galleries. And I knew more, more, more or less about that. I want to really, really have a guy that is like really good at improvising. In fact, that's all he does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he cannot remember a single line of dialogue. And that's, that was to my benefit in a way, because he made it always more personal. It came up with lines and, that are like, never written by anyone <laughs> apart from they were somebody in his hat and they were really good and it's kind of a funny thing to really to hear him say things that 
actually fit him, you know, and not so much the story. And then he would repeat it one more time, the whole thing in his way, which has which had fractions, sections of the, the needed dialogue in there. So I always said, sometimes I ended up using that, even though it wasn't always clear what he meant, but it was so, so interesting. You still don't get it, do you, Jack? Huh? The beauty of it. A bomb is made to explode. That's its meaning, its purpose. Your life is empty because you spend it trying to stop the bomb from becoming. And for who? For what? Do you know what a bomb is, Jack, that doesn't explode? It is a cheap gold watch, buddy. There was an over-the-top quality, a kind of insane Dennis Hopper thing. And at first I thought, is this too much? Is this, is this just so over the top that people are going to laugh? And yet it worked. It was, he was great. It turned out he was great. And, and if it had been a more grounded performance, it wouldn't have been fun. The movie, I think, works because it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's inventive. It never stops. Um, and it's an elevated, it's elevated reality. He was an, 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 an kind of an inventor in, the, in a little bit, in a way, an event, in, in inventing his, the character. Um, no matter what was written about him, what the character was supposed to represent, he, he came up with somebody completely different. And, and that was actually so much better than, than was, was on the page. And uh, in that regard, I'm very great, was very grateful to him that he, that he did that. And I let him do it because it was, I could clearly see this is more, it's more original. And it was all to me, it felt real, but anything is felt, feels real and, and, and fits the other characters too, because the, a lot of the dialogue has been improvised to a degree that is, benefits the character. And generally, he was the one who did the most of it all, though. And I didn't even call the improvisation. It was him. He, did, he, he, didn't, he didn't consider it to be improvising, he said. He said, that's how, that's how I am. One of those improvised bits, by the way, is when Payne calls Jack Traven a punk in the subway. As I've said, I just love the metatextual quality of that, this industry-recognized rebel deigning to call someone else a punk and the guy who will become Mr. Cyberpunk at that. Speaking of which, here's what Keanu Reeves had to say about working with Dennis Hopper. Ah, uh, man, I love that guy. Um, I had met him earlier on a film called River's Edge, and so it was nice to see him again. Um, you know, he had such a warmth and a twinkle in his eye and in his heart and spirit. You know, he really took on board this arch kind of character and made him feel, I thought, almost in a way sympathetic um, and vulnerable. And, and then as a performer, just, you know, had fun and allowed us to enjoy his kind of bitterness and venal and his kind of like a guy who's trying to have control, who ends up having no, who's thwarted, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, it, it's so much fun when just he's just like, Jack, ah, you know? scrambling around when he realizes he's been had <laughs> so much fun, you know, in the way that he's like, you know, kind of smarmy and thinks he knows it all. And 
Actor Jeff Daniels got to work with Hopper in that opening elevator sequence and, you know, gets to be blown up by the guy. Let's hear from him. You know, and he was, you know, perfectly nice and, and but hardly the the rebel renegade, you know, the, that you might expect. You know, I didn't impose myself on him too much. And uh, um, yeah, he was he was a pleasure. He was a pleasure. I I did my job and he did his. And then we went to lunch. You know, I don't know if he was doing it for money or or just to do something or whether he really, really believed in it or loved playing. You know, at that point, you're playing a bad guy, which is kind of what, you know. I can see we got a great bad guy if you want to play him in a movie called Speed, Dennis. Yeah, man, yeah, that sounds good. He might have been that, but no, as a person I was I was got to work with a little bit. Pure pro. Dennis Hopper died in 2010. It was prostate cancer that got him. I never met him, though he did squeeze past me in an aisle at a screening once. I even remember the movie, All the King's Men, the remake with Sean Penn. Anyway, it sucks because I'd love to interview him about this movie. Because no one else did. At least not retrospectively. There's the usual stuff around release, and even then, he didn't seem to have a lot to say about it beyond dutifully promoting the movie. He did host the HBO first look on the movie, which is a hoot, and I'll talk about that more down the line. But you find yourself digging through 30-year-old junket interviews for any interesting morsel. Sort of the world of Bobby Wygant. And you either get that reference or you don't, and I'm not going to explain it. But anyway, one of the most insightful things I did find was this answer to Nashville journalist Jimmy Carter. No, not the president. It feels like the right way to work Dennis's voice in here. Well, when I read the script, there's no really backstory on this guy, which is, you know, we're conditioned as actors to want to know who, who the parts we're playing. Who is this guy? And uh, there wasn't any story. I mean, at the end of this movie... All you can really figure out, if you follow your information, is that he has a bad hand. That was obviously something happened to him in the explosion. Uh, he was an ex-cop. Uh, he's made. Uh, he's retired. He's made one of the bombs out of his uh, retirement watch, his gold watch. You know nothing about him. So the main job is make sure this guy isn't a one-level guy. Uh, put in a little humor, make him human. I thought of Keanu as my son, maybe uh, in some sort of perverted way. Uh, couldn't uh, interest you in a bribe, could I? There's enough money for everybody, you know. Oh, here he is again. Uh, he, he always gets his man, you know, that kind of thing. I have a little humor in it. Uh, sort of come on to her about with the dynamite all over. Don't worry, it's not going to hurt you when you explode. You won't feel a thing. I mean, the sick, uh, sick, but, but humorous. And, and yet, like the guy next door, could be the guy next door. Something a little sad about him. Some sort of human element that's in there. Makes it scarier to me. In the end, like with every other role, I think Speed got the absolute best person to play this part. There's just something about that dynamic between Dennis and Keanu that's hard to really explain. There's a spark to the whole thing, and there's something singular about it to me as well. I don't feel like it's derivative, even though it's clearly dabbling in derivative material. And I love that Keanu and Dennis crossed paths that one time before in River's Edge, because they're in two completely different movies in that film. And they feel like ghosts in each other's movie. Nearly a decade later, they clash, finally. They square off in an elevator shaft. Jeff Daniels is there. Keanu shoots the hostage, and then they play out the middle of the film off-screen from one another, just like River's Edge all over again. Finally, they fight each other on top of a subway car, and Dennis Hopper loses his head. It just feels like if it had been anybody else, then it simply could have been anybody else. But no. 
Dennis Hopper is Howard Payne. We totally got the best person. And I kept coming back to Dennis because, like, he, A, he would do it. And we were, like, you know, a week away. And B, it would, it, it would be fun. I love reinventing people. I love kind of bringing surprising, you know. I mean, why do the obvious casting? I, I either wanted to cast somebody who nobody knew and go find some great, obscure, incredibly quirky, odd, you know, interesting um, guy, or bring somebody who's not considered a name. Of course, the studio wanted to be able to promote somebody and have this triangle of Keanu, the woman, and the guy, and to be able to have those kind of names up there with Keanu, because it would help promote the movie. And the marketing department had a lot to say about it, but the movie didn't attract those people, or the roles didn't. They were behind whoever was the most famous at the time who hadn't said no yet. You know, I don't think they ever thought that we would get a huge movie star, but they, they definitely were interested in the biggest name we could possibly get for the money. Yeah, there was a lot to bring to it, and, uh, and Dennis did that in, in, the, in the most wonderful way. Like, that's always a – and at the end of the day, you know, it's a great lesson and reminder to all of us in, you know, trust the actor. Trust the actor will bring something, like, and, and it will be something a little unexpected to what the obvious thing is. Like, had Chris Walken done it, it would have been amazing, but it wouldn't have been surprising for any of those guys. We could, and there were a bunch of people we could have cast also that were really great, like I said, great character guys who were out there. But I think the Hopper thing had enough baggage and enough good baggage, like, interest, you know, interesting stuff and, and enough history and, comp, you know, complicated human stuff. I mean, when you look back at who he really was for all those years, there was great history and, uh, and life there that, that, that won out over maybe a, just a great character guy. You're crazy. You're fucking crazy. Oh, no. Poor people are crazy, Jack. I'm eccentric. Get the money. Let's go. Come on! Let's go! Move it! Move it! You're staying! Move it! Move it! In the door! In that door now! Bye, Jack. Punk. Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour, we've got ourselves a bad guy. And if anyone from Speed deserves a deeper dive, it's screen icon Dennis Hopper. He has over 200 credits. It's a really interesting indication of how many different worlds he lived in. Author and journalist Mark Harris joins me to break down the Hollywood Rebels' career from the turning points. He is the, the most unlikely Tom Ripley of anyone who has ever played Tom Ripley. To the landmarks. Apocalypse Now is 79, so, so it's a little bit of a look back. You get to enjoy the era-specific wild man authenticity that Hopper brings to that part. To, of course, the bomb on a bus movie. Aside from the fact that he can do menace and villainy and evil, you know, in his sleep by this point, there is a kind of lightness to him. He, he knows that speed isn't like this huge plunge into darkness. All of that and more next week right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. 
You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50mphpodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.